Okay, quick temperature check on this one is also going to be. Let me see a show of hands here because that's like one of the things I love about weird literature and and that whole you know, Cthulhu mythos culture. Well, is that there's so many ways to enter into it. Some of us are coming into it through, well, rarely poetry, but it's like sometimes you're coming into it through, you know, fiction, and possibly I see a couple of aspiring writers, you know, in there. So, how many of you are also aspiring writers? Okay. Okay. How many of you are also gamers, where you could see yourself involved with role-playing games and things like that? Okay. Good question. Um, musicians. Okay, one or two. All right. Let's see. What what else am I missing on that? Artists. Oh, artists. Yes. Okay. Oh, perfect question. All right. Okay, good. I got one out of nothing. Sculptors. Oh, sculptors. Yeah, yeah, sculptors. Excellent. Okay. Yeah. So, good. Let's see. But how are we doing on the time before we have to officially start? One minute. Ago. Sixty seconds. Yeah. If someone's got something that you really don't want to record in here and you want to get it out, tell us now or forever hold you <laughs> your tentacles. All right. Well, it, it would appear that um, let's see, we have not been assigned another minder here, so it is only the Southeast Asians <laughs> up at the table here, and that is all right. That's all right. So, in order to clarify. Just in case it hasn't been obvious in the last you know, 15 minutes of banter, you are supposed to be in Lovecraft in Southeast Asia, here at Necronomicon. And so, um, bearing that in mind, I am your you know, poet laureate for the 2022 um, Conference here. It's like, I keep, it's like a conference or convention. I'm always a little torn about. I think it's a con convention. I'm going to go with convention. Yeah, fair. So bear with me. And so we are going from two o'clock to three fifteen, and yeah, we are going to try and do our remarks here as a roadmap for you, where we will do our piece and go on till about maybe two thirty, two forty-five, and then as what we've talked about, we can then bring up the pressing questions, you know, then like, why didn't you mention the forbidden text of so-and-so or such-and-such, you know, as well is. But I, my, our plan is, is allow me to first introduce our, my um, esteemed colleagues here. This is Nadia Balkin, uh, a, and this is Cassandra Call. So, the framing, it's like the framing text for this was Classical pulp-era writers look to French Indochina and you know, the islands of the South Pacific as mysterious and exotic settings, a source for strange artifacts and distant adventure. Len, Pachocho, and Shigoran were inserted into the region without consideration for local cultures and history. Unsurprisingly, fiction and gaming scenarios by Western authors often focus on the island happening of the Pacific Wars and events of the Second Indochina War. And, Second Indochina War would basically constitute like the Vietnam War, the Secret War for Laos, um, the conflict in Cambodia um, in particular. And I believe Malaysia may also have had some conflicts right around that time as well. But I don't think that gets touched on. But you'll probably help us yeah. with that soon. Anyway, our panelists, oh, that's us, look at the representation of Southeast Asian cultures and weird fiction, um, issues of appropriation. Oh, that never happens. <laughs> And the adaptation and repurposing of you know, Western law and the development of a weird in Southeast Asia. Yeah. So, does that sound like a fun topic for everyone, or do you want us to radically change it? <laughs> okay. Well, 
there you have a vote, Ben. So let's, let's see, let's do the introductions, Ben. And it's like, uh, well, go with the alphabetical order. Cassandra, tell us a little bit about yourself. I was not expecting that because it was there ah, It's like, nobody expects the Southeast Asian Inquisition. <laughs> Minnesotan poet. I'm then currently in kind of nomadic mode here in a complicated story here in the sense of you know, a recent grant that I had or a project that I had been attached to that made me say, oh, you know what? It's like, yeah, it's like I can save more money here by giving up my apartment in Minneapolis here, putting it in storage, you know, and then it's like I'll come back and go grab an apartment you know, then rather than spend all this time on the road there. Well, let me tell you something. It's like timing that for February 2020 um, was not exact. It's like, you know, so you just came from Asia. Um, it's like, um, and several weeks in Asia, and you want to rent an apartment for us. Is well, that's a leads to some interesting conversations here. So I've been keeping on the road for a while here. But anyway, so I have been um, writing. Um, science fiction, fantasy, and horror from the Lao um, and, and Southeast Asian traditions in diaspora here for a good, know, for a good 20 um, to 30 years here. Depends on how you do the calculations. Ben. I often say that a writer has many different beginnings. You know, ben, and, you're never, and it's hard to kind of you put the boom, this is when it all started from my experience. But, and so we'll kind of go into that from a poetry perspective, from prose, which you know, all of it. But I'm doing. I'm I'm the last expert on that one. Sandra, you are the expert on, or the, you're doing mostly. Which community are you kind of specializing in all that? Okay, and Nadia. Um, hi, I'm Nadia. Um, I am a half Indonesian writer, um, but actually my first Lovecraft story was for Innsmouth Free Press, and it was expressly for their like international issue. Um, and I had never written anything Lovecraft before then. I didn't even really know who Lovecraft was, honestly. But I was in that mode where I'm like, okay, I'm just going to try every single submission call ever. And so I'm like, I guess I should look this up. And then I was reading through it, and I'm like, I could make this work. Um, and so that's kind of how I started writing um, Southeast Asian Lovecraft. I've written only a few, but um, given that the field is so small, <laughs> that's still more than a lot of people. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I'm, I represent sort of the maritime-ish, you know, areas. Um, yeah. That's all. So the first story was called Red Goat, Black Goat. Thank you. It is fantastic. I recommend people read it immediately after it came on. I'm currently stunned that it was your first one with Brad. No, it wasn't even one. I'm so scared when he looks at me. What? I get worried when he looks at me. Believe me, I don't really bite horribly here. Yeah. Like, like, so. Bite horribly is a very specific phrasing. 
Right. <laughs> Extremely specific. All right, I'll tell you what. It's like I've, I've kind of loosened this up a little bit here, but um, I came to the United States in 1973, so that's a really long time ago then, which is also next, it's like next year will mark the, you know, the end of the you know, U.S. secret war in Laos, you know, then that you know, took place from, arguably, from 1954 you know, to 1973. So, um, in which many people don't understand that that was a, a conflict, that because, well, secret war. Anyway, so growing up in the, in the United States, you know, then for me, it was this issue of this experience of nobody knew you know, where you were from, and, you know, no one knew why you were here. And you know, if when you were growing up in the 1980s in America, someone like me you know, suddenly realized that there weren't a lot of books about our experience. But it's like, you know, our experience, most people came into it you know, through popular media, through you know, movies like Apocalypse Now. Full Metal Jacket. Um, that's like Platoon. Um, let's be, oh, let's be, oh, and Rambo. How could I forget Rambo? You know, right? It's like, no, it's a bit, you know. And so that was always grown up into a United States in which we were seen as the enemy, we were seen as targets, we were seen at most as villagers who had no agency. And of course, if, uh, for me, growing up in Michigan, this was also right during the height of anti-Asian, anti-Japanese sentiment, you know, and, you know, as well as Detroit auto workers were often concerned with, um, you know, the Japanese and you know, other foreign car makers are taking our jobs in the motor city and so on. So this was a very challenging issue that you know, I found myself often turning to speculative literature you know, as a means of the only space where I could find you know, characters, whether they were villains or heroes, you know, that, that, that meant I was able to see, you know, this year is the um, anniversary for the release of the film Blade Runner. And when I usually talk about Blade Runner to my um, classes, you know, then, you know, when I'm brought in as a visiting you know, lecturer here, I often say, you know, um, for many people, it's strange that this picture of Los Angeles that you see is supposed to be a dystopian picture. It's this bleak picture. Yeah. And it's like, you know, what do you like about this? And I'm just going, I know it seems like that, but when you look at it, what I see is like, you know, Blade Runner opens up with, oh, here's Harrison Ford sitting at a um, all-you-can-eat, um, you know, Asian noodle restaurant. Yeah. It's like this is a world where the Hare Krishnas and you have all these Asians you know, running around just in the streets casually. Yeah. And you know, like one of the best parts, though, is for some of you who you know, may not you know, directly immediately recall, there's a scene where, where the detective goes in to figure out, okay, what's this mysterious scale I found in the, in the room? And you know, the lady who is looking says, oh, it's not a. Um, it's not fish scale, it's a snake scale. The significance of that that most people miss is that in the credits, she's credited as the Cambodian street geneticist. And so can you imagine in 1982, you're looking at you know, this movie in which in this, optim in this weirdly pessimistic yet optimistic future, there's a chance that someone who is coming out of the Cambodian killing fields here has also now gone on to become a street geneticist then making her happy own little living out there. And, it's like, you know, and, and I thought to myself, wow, what a, what a way to see a Southeast Asian culture out there. But coming into the weird literature for myself, then it's like, you know, it's a complicated story, but, but you know, the best metaphor I use is that 
Oh, it's like in H.P. Lovecraft stories, like one of the classic stories, Ben, is that um, you have this alien species that suddenly comes around and it takes the most creative, the best and the brightest um, brains of your, uh, of your culture and it shoves them into these shiny little metal cylinders, Ben, and transports them all the way across to the great galaxies um, there to see incredibly strange things these people have never seen before. You're talking about a world or a cosmos in which, yeah, you, know, you have the great old ones fighting these elder things here, and you have this, and you have this humanity to which these great warring um, beings are completely indifferent. And coming out of the Southeast Asian conflicts of the 20th century, how might that resonate with a um, with a child of those conflicts? Gee, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and so this was the kind of thing that it became easier for me in my work to do it because when I was looking for my heritage and trying to reconnect with my family and my culture, you couldn't talk to people who were traumatized by um, that conflict. It was still too fresh in their minds. You couldn't say, hey, what was it like fleeing for your life then as people were shooting at you and everything else like that? But in speculative literature, it's like, oh, hey, look at this post-apocalyptic you know, camp here where everyone's huddled in and you know, they're trying to survive. Then, and then you suddenly have the elders going, oh, yeah, that's really nice. You know, but that's totally not how it is. It's like, you know, these Americans in this you know, camp, they're, it's like, no, they're so stupid. It's like, you know, or they are going hungry. It's like, look at them. They're out in the jungle. There's plenty of things you know, for them to go and eat. Like, Okay, well, and, and that's how we started reconnecting with our history, and that's, you know, and since then that's become part of the thing that I've always wanted to give back with my work and also use it to figure out, you know, in weird literature, and especially in the work of the Cthulhu mythos, there's often been these really problematic interpretations here that we'll go into, you know, then, but, so that's kind of like my take about how I ended it, Cassandra, now it's your turn. All right, that's fair. Um, <laughs> So I grew up in Malaysia, stayed there, lived there until I was about 25 or so, and ended up nomadic for 10 years, um, bouncing between countries every three months, um, couch surfing. I will say that I was not very wise in my mid-20s. When I flew from Malaysia to San Francisco, I crashed on a couch of a friend whose photo I'd never seen before. There is a timeline where I'm very dead. <laughs> Just so dead. I looked at my past self and I'm like, why the hell did I do that? Um, but in Malaysia, I recall there was a lot of sex tourism, a lot of white folks who would come down there who treated the women there like commodities, like they were easy access, they could have anyone they wanted and they acted accordingly. Um, I think some of it is from propaganda from the past, like Pulp Vietnam covers the idea that uh, to use uh, the Ali Wong term, jungle Asians are easy. And I think that belief still remains for a lot of people. Anyway, um, started traveling for 10 years, and it was around that time that I really got into the Lovecraftian mythos, because when you move so much, there is a sense of alienness. There is the realization as you move between airport and Airbnb and a friend's home, you can vanish. There is no guarantee. We assume because we are locked into cities that everything is safe, that we have our schedules, that we have our patterns. But the truth is, at any moment, something's just going to happen. And that alienness, I think, drew me to cosmic horror just at wondering about it. Because I remember being in Airbnb sometimes, I like, hear sounds and going like, 
probably someone fighting, but what if? There's something weird is going on in there. And I think that's one of the reasons I really got into Lovecraftian writing is also seeing how people reacted to me. When I had more of my Malaysian accent, people treated me more as the other. They treated me as an odd thing. Um, I recall, I think it was about 27 or so, where someone asked if the alignment of my genitalia was tilted in a certain way. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? And it happens. And it's just a painful thing to do. Um, and so Lovecraftian myth was interesting to look at because in many ways it embodied what I saw that othering, that being treated as alien yet fascinating. Because if you look at all of the stories, um, despite how terrifying all of it is, uh, Lovecraft had scholars and inventors trying to explore and understand an ethical, even if they were frightened of it. That's how I got into it. And eventually, not wait long, but eventually when I started writing my own, I kind of looked back into the cultural history of Malaysia, how the legends were, and how much cosmic horror was inherent in all of our folk tales and stuff. There was just that sense that you could vanish into the jungle, that there are things living there. Uh, we had the Oram Bunian, who um, so it's like the Malaysian equivalent of the faith folk. And I remember one of the stories um, I was told growing up was like, if you go up this certain cave and you're not nice about it, and you look up into the trees the wrong way, your friends are going to find you neatly folded up in piles. Like one pile of skin, one pile of bones, one pile of organ. Why? There is no explanation. It just is. And there is an intersection between that and the crafted mythos, I think. Also, I've talked to much that Okay. Okay. Um, awesome. And what Brian said actually kind of reminded me of how I feel like I got into it somewhat. Um, for me, it was less about, I think because I'm mixed race, I've always just been like, I'm other, you know, um, everywhere. So I don't actually think as much about it because everybody always kind of sees me as like what they want to see is what I have found because of my past as white. But I, if I take an Indonesian accent, people are like, oh, okay, I can't lie to her about where I'm taking her, you know, in this taxi cab kind of thing. Um, anyway, but I think what I always found most interesting about Lovecraft stories is how much of the like power dynamics and differential and the sense that you're looking and trying to negotiate with something that is far, far, far larger than you. And um, what Brian just said about like um, people being, you know, running from a war kind of thing. It's like, I love the idea that like the great old ones are the empires, the European empires fighting it out, duking it out in this land that isn't theirs, you know, essentially. And you're just the little people and you're like, well, um, I need to make a deal with like this one seems bad, also seems bad. Okay, well, I, this one maybe will let me keep more of my land, so maybe I'll make a deal with that one. Um, and something that I really love about Indonesian folklore slash horror is how much of it is not moralistic. Mm -hmm. It's not like Western or American horror in that way that it's like constantly trying to teach you a lesson. Like it's constantly trying to teach you what is dumb, 
and what is smart, <laughs> but that's not the same. Um, there is a lot of deal making with a lot of spirits and entities, and like you, you know, you may have to say, you know, I, I write my name in this book. You can come collect me in fifty years, but that means you leave my children alone. Like, and it's like, yeah, that's what you got to do. You do what you got to do. Um, and I feel like that lack of kind of like puritanical moralism is something that. Um, yeah, Lovecraft is really into as well. So that's that's kind of the way I, the angle I always took in was like, how do you negotiate with powers that are far greater than you, essentially? Well, I mean, and I think that's actually starting to touch on something that if I was going to make the, uh, you know, and this is a very broad generalization, mind you, but if I was going to say also that um, why are we differentiating between Southeast Asian um, approaches to um, weird literature and also say East Asian literature, which would be China, Korea, and Japan, for example, is but I would say that the East Asian approach is often very ritual-centered, but there's also a certain methodical element you know, to it that you know, it would almost be very similar to you know, the Western you know, models where, you know, like magic is often presented kind of like in this Harry Potter thing, but magic is basically just, um, you know, just enough study that you can get consistent results out of it. And I'm pretty sure that in Malaysia and also in Indonesia, similar to what we have in you know, Southeast Asia you know, or in, in Laos, you know, then, is that magic is a lot closer to kind of like the Peter Beagle model in the last unicorn of magic, do as you will, which is that um, do the spirits um, answer you? Yeah, sometimes they do, but it's wild, it's unpredictable, and it's incredibly dangerous, but you've also been pushed into that situation then, and it's not something you should be using casually then, and it's kind of like, even if you do it once this way, these are dynamic creatures, these are dynamic entities, you know, then that when you do it, it's like, yeah, well, you know, yeah, you took six chickens, you know, the last time, you, yeah, well, now the price is three pigs, I want three <laughs> pigs, um, offered to me, and I want some, and you get, and the shamans will often tell you in each of the different traditions, Ben, that, you know, they want, you know, something very different there, and it's like, you know, you can't predict it, and I think the interesting element is that's in Southeast Asian mythology, as we've been running into it, each of us looking into it, I think we can all agree that the shapes and forces there are also tend to be shapeshifters in that you never really quite know what you're dealing with. Maybe you're dealing with a were tiger, or maybe it's the not these giant uh, these giant ogres that are similar to the Oni of the Rakshasha, who haven't just be shapeshifted into a spirit here because they know that you're gonna be afraid more of a were tiger in that situation than anything else, right? And it's like an, and it's that and it's that unknowable horror that comes into it. I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that Southeast Asia is tropical, and if you look at the jungles and the shadows and the ease with which mm-hmm. you can just vanish into it, like our forebearers are just looking at it, going, like, no, nothing's ever stagnant in here. That tiger could be a jaguar, it could be a boa constrictor, it could be any fucking thing. It just wants you dead, mm-hmm. and you need to figure out how to navigate and negotiate with your environment in order to survive. And I think that perhaps trickles down into well, we understand of it. Uh, I also want to jump very briefly to what um, Nadia was saying about how um, I think Southeast Asian horror in particular lacks a moral, moral element. And I'm thinking that's kind of why Western adaptations of Southeast Asian horror movies never work. 
Uh, one of my favorite growing up was uh, the Pung Brothers, The Eye. And for those who don't know, essentially, it's a story about how a girl gets like, in a corneal transplant and she starts seeing ghosts. Eventually, and I apologize for spoilers ahead of time, um, it gets to a point where there is this giant accident in the highway. She sees thousands of, well, hundreds of souls just draining away. It is a moment of pure horror. And shrapnel gets into her eyes and she is blinded. And that is it. She just kind of walks away with it. It's like that sense of relief. Like, thank God I can no longer see the horrors that I've been witnessing for the last two hours. Whereas the Jessica Elba adaptation had her saving a kid before that happens. And I think that's the big difference. Like with um, American horror in particular, there needs to be some kind of salvation. If you don't save the people you love, if you don't save yourself, at least some part of your ideology, your beliefs needs to be salvaged at the end, even as everything explodes. Oh, I mean, it's, a, it's that 100%. whole logic. Yeah, it's that whole logic train. You know, I mean, it's like you know, cause and effect in American horror um, has taken root. That, that Lovecraft himself didn't really um, address too often. But, but you know, for us, for example, you know, it would be like that movie um, The Ring, where it's like, okay, great. It's like, no, we're going to solve this problem by just you know, making a copy of the No, that's not the thing that you do. It's like now she's you know, going to run around out there. That does not actually solve a problem. I think that resonates with the Southeast Asian approach to horror that, no, it's like at best you can kind of negotiate with it and you're still always, from that point on, are going to have to watch your back on it. You try to, it's like, no, you don't, it's like these are supernatural beings that you run into. Yeah, then, but yeah, that's it's like um, you don't really negotiate with them fully, then, and so like, you just understand that's just it. Like, I think one friend of mine was just saying, like, oh, you know, like, why is the house haunted? I don't know. The house is, it just is. Is the house evil? Yeah, it's like, it shouldn't be evil. I don't like it being evil, but it's just evil. And it's like, you know, it's like, it's almost kind of like Hannibal Lecter back in the day. There's no amount of psychoanalysis you can do. You can't go back to, well, you know, if you hadn't built it on the Indian burial ground, it's like, no, it's like, it just woke up one day and it's evil. It's evil and, now. And, <laughs> and, and yeah, and you know, and, and you know, I can just see the American protagonist would go in and it's like, well, you know, we have to exercise. No, this is not a space, but you exercise. You <laughs> you, you just leave it alone, and, that, and that's basically what you're going through in a lot of that. Mm. I think about it, I've gone a lot of Malaysian haunted house movies. Everyone knows you're just supposed to get the fuck out of Dodge when you know it's haunted. I'm like, just take your friends and your loved ones and just go. Right, exactly. It's like if something shunned along the way here, it, it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, it just is. It's kind of like, you know, like one of the um, old travel tourist trips we always had was when you're going out to um, eat abroad or something like that, you may see the street noodle seller, you know, Ben, who's all along, and she may look like a sweet little old lady and no one's there. Don't give in. It's like, don't, it's like, it's like you just can't feel sorry for it. The reason why all the locals are eating at the upper um, food stalls there is that they know that this lady doesn't make noodles right. I thought you were going to go with, like, she's actually a demon. Well, that, I, I have absolutely that. It's like, no, well, it's, like, it's a flip of a coin, too. It's like, you never know. It's like, you know, like, yeah. But see, Southeast Asian cultures are also going to be working a little bit differently. But, you know, East Asian culture in horror and everything else like that is often going to be 
present with the idea of a relationship to face, honor, family, mm. and so on. And that's not to say that those aren't factors in our cultures and lives. It's different, though. It's mm. different. Like, I feel like Southeast Asian, like when, when I watch Indonesian horror movies, for instance, which have had a resurgence lately, and it's awesome, um, versus like Japanese, Korean horror movies, I always think that the Indonesian ones, like, they, the protagonists are shameless. Like, they don't care. Like, it, they, they may find out they're descended from some really terrible person, and they're like, okay, well, I'm going to have to cast your soul into hell because I, I don't, you know, like, I don't care about you. Like, they, there's no, there's much more of a sort of, like, a survival at no matter what cost. Um, and I feel like that makes sense, right? Because, like, Japan, Korea, and China, well, maybe not Korea, um, also colonized. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I feel like Southeast Asia has always been the land of receiving that kind of violence. And so you learn through like generations of that, that you just have to survive no matter what. Um, Indonesia very famously was like colonized for like 400 years. And like Indonesians are just like, yeah, we'll just take it, you know? But the, the other side of just taking it is that you learn how to survive. Um, even if that means making deals with the devil, you know, and I know that like, for me, one of the first things that I wrote, uh, read about Lovecraft in like non-white contexts was um, by Nick Lamadis talking about how like, for him, for H.P. Lovecraft, like maybe he was afraid of, um, you know, interbreeding and, you know, all the other like scary colored folks coming in um but for us it's like maybe we can ally with the monsters like maybe the monster is actually something that we can unite with um and i've always taken that approach in how i write um so yeah I was just going to say I really agree with what you said. Like I think a lot of the Southeast Asian mentalities generally survive at all costs. Um, Malaysia was an epicenter for like sex trafficking, um, drug trade, and stuff like that. So growing up, instead of my mom telling me don't run with scissors or look both ways, she'd be like, okay, if you get kidnapped <laughs> for child prostitution, you should I do this and this and this to get out. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I recall as well, like talking about survival things, well, that willingness to do anything possible. Um, I grew up with a lot of other girls who were like, I'm going to get married to very well-to-do white dude, get my damn citizenship, leave him in five years and be in a better shape to be able to bring my family along into the West, which is slightly on fire now, but back in like the early 2000s, 90s, it was very sensible. But yeah, I think that survival instinct is there, and I agree completely with the idea that um, I think we would look at possible monsters coming in and go like, can you be a friend? Can we ally with you? Because there's so many things that go to Southeast Asia. There's so many colonial influences, so many invaders. Like, mm, I mean, rejection is difficult. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about the way it was presented to me a while back there, but again, if you're going to look at the dichotomy that Western literature you know, in horror used to be a real 
um, Christian-centered model of sin and salvation, and you know, it's like, yeah, you know, you get your Holy Cross or something like that and defeat um, the monsters and stuff like that, but that the differentiation for um, Asian and Southeast Asian approaches in particular was that it's about your ignorance of yourself, that uh, or the ignorance of truth. That's why you have Buddhist ideas, for example, that you know what are you, what are you seeking in enlightenment. That it isn't about making you feel happy. It's about do you know what the truth is? And it's like you know, what are, do you know what you're looking at? Do you know what you are? So something like Innsmouth, and it's like yeah, you know, it's like for a dude, you know, goes running around, it's like yeah, oh yeah, you know, you're running away from all this, but it's been you all along, yeah, you know, which is a terrible. You know, it's like, sorry, Dumbo. <laughs> yeah. oh. I mean, talking again, it's, you know, for Southeast Asia, as you start looking at it in you know, weird literature, the important thing for you to note will be that it's not monolithic either. It's that in Laos, for example, and many other parts, it's like, you know, we're talking about over 160 different ethnic groups and minorities running around in there. And that's the thing that you know, people have in the past you know, made a flaw in trying to create literature and out there because we think it's oh it's all one and the same here but no it's like in Laos for example you're talking about um, Theravada Buddhism is pretty big but you'll run into the Zen Buddhists but you'll also run into the Hindu um, influences Chinese Confucianism Chinese Taoism then you'll run into the folk um, religions you'll run into the Hmong shamans um, for example then you also run into thanks to colonization in the 1880s it's like yeah you've got the French Catholic missionaries who are running around so you have you know, the French Catholic you know, perspective, and then you had you know, Russians for a little while, and sometimes, you know, and, and this is all coming in. That you know, like, what are you running into when you're on that battlefield, and you think you run into um, something supernatural? Well, is it a French born legionnaire's ghost, or is it you know, just some ancient you know, person from the border kingdoms? And it's like, like, what do you do? It's like, you know, again, this falls into what I would call um, very intriguing approaches to Lovecraftian themes we love. Yeah, I think I think when I think about like giving advice to people who want to write in Southeast Asia, um, I was thinking about this on the train ride down, and it was, it was a few things. One was don't assume that the people if you're if you're say are taking you know Betty Joe who's from Providence um, over to Southeast Asia. Don't assume that Betty Jo is the first person who has ever seen the monster. <laughs> you know, like it's it's probably very likely that the people who live there have a name for it and have a have an understanding of it. Don't assume that they worship it. I've so many um, Lovecraftian takes. It's like, oh, the the locals worship this terrible god. Like, well, would they or would they be like, I don't know, don't go there because there's like something really scary there. You know, like, let's be, let's be a little rational here. Um, and then my third point was, don't assume that Lovecraft's interpretation is right of what it is and what it wants. Because if you think about it just like you're playing in a mythos, it's like maybe he was the first one to write it down, but that doesn't mean that you can't say, well, he might have been a little skewed. Talk about like your second point. I'm thinking of show chills. Show chills. Candle Hermes. I, mm-hmm. I reread it this morning, and I'm just I cannot stop sighing about it. Um, well, I mean, it's like you know, I, that that has been when I was attached to the Innsmouth Free Press. Then it's like you no, know, the one of the things was that I took on the Chocho beat. Yeah, you know, then where they, we had the. Um, 
whole thing of it's like you know you're supposed to create these little mini stories here about you know like yeah you know which which creature do you want to talk about and stuff like that and I'm going okay I'm going to do this test to see could we rehabilitate the Chocho um, thing here because in the you know, way that the Chochos were presented in the original Cthulhu mythos it's like these subhuman primitive um, savage people who basically gave up their humanity in order to make pacts with the great old ones here and I'm obviously paraphrasing that but where it became problematic for me when I first ran into them as a culture was through a Delta Green supplement where all of a sudden it's like, you know, we're talking about the CIA used the Chochos to, you know, it's like, you know, to fight their enemies in North Vietnam then, which is sort of like, oh, oh yeah. but, and so you see, where for me, this is problematic coming from Laos, you know, then because it's a very close analogy and in fact, it's a stand-in for the Hmong culture, you know, then, and this then suddenly became a question of, Okay, so simultaneously I'm intrigued at this idea, but this is also getting really virgin on unacceptable racism. So I decided to say, I'm going to play around with it and see, like, okay, what if we just say, you misunderstood it, and now here's the flip on it of what it would be like if we treated the Chochos in America as this, um, as this relatively benign culture, or that it also exists on a continuum. Maybe you have um, some who really practice horrific practices, but then you have them, you know, it's like, and so as a social experiment within the mythos, you know, then, you know, not, not a lot of people paid attention to it at the time, but I still think it's kind of like the issues that we are working with you know, right now is that ultimately there are still people who want to offer us as Southeast Asians then, and as we participate in this, it's not a guarantee that other, you know, like I, I get pushed back from a lot of my students, kind of like, why are we doing this? Why are we taking a look at you know, such an established tradition? Because to me, you may not like Lovecraft and his immediate contemporaries, racism and the bigotry of the misogyny of these other problematic issues in that right. But if you like Douglas Adams, if you like Neil Gaiman, if you like Stephen King, and you want to also be stepping into that same conversation with them, then it helps to know what is there and, you know, what we salvage and what we rehabilitate. And I don't know if that's always an easy answer. I don't think it's ever going to be an easy answer, but I agree completely in the idea that it's something that needs to be examined. Um, just looking at colonial rule alone, we cannot, on principle, pretend it never happened. It has affected us, it has changed our various cultures, it has molded us in a certain way. Even if you're looking at like our consumption of media these days, it's still shaped by it. So yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, it's impo- it's impossible to erase or undo. You kind of have to adapt, which is kind of the theme of our panel. <laughs> and see, one of the challenges I find is that when I'm trying to you know, create this interaction between our traditional myths and uh, the Lovecraftian monsters is to make sure that we don't have a scenario in which you know, other writers just say, oh, you know, I'm just going to take your, um, your sacred nagas and I'm also going to turn them into these cosmic horrors who hate humanity too. And I'm going, okay, you know what? It's like, I know this sounds really crazy, but there are a lot of us that ran into elders who are just saying, you know, that these are the temple guardians of the Buddhist um, traditions here, and this is very the sacrilegious. And I'm thinking, you know, fair, fair enough comment here. And um, it's like, and I always make um, the effort to um, just say everyone's aligned the right way. You know, but, I mean, so, you know, we went into interesting things like, you know, like here we have Akdun Cthulhu here, which is yeah. a supplement that is set in the Pacific, you know, in the Pacific Rim area. You know, and, you know, it's like, and it's one of the things where they did a lot of research on that, but it's like, you know, it's this weird feeling to be going into it as a Southeast Asian going like, okay, what are you getting, right? What are you getting, 
me up more. I'm like, are you giving us the opportunity to do that? I mean, I, I loved back in the uh, journal, the Indochine um, supplement out, but you can spot it over in the, uh, in the bazaar um, right now. But again, it's kind of like as much research as these guys did with it. It's like, okay, but this is basically working at it from a French legionnaire's experience of a French colonizer's experience. Exactly. My, the material I have to work with it is to say, well, okay, well, what about a Lao poet? You know, what if, it's like, you know, how is that Lao poet going to navigate you know, this scenario? Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't really have a lot of material on <laughs> It kind of reminds me of Rural Darkness as Henge Yokai and region supplements, which I loved when I was younger, mm -hmm. but they kind of just broke each region into, this is a very specific vampire that comes from Indonesia, from the Philippines, and I'm like, sure, okay, I'm just glad for representation at this point when I was younger, so mm -hmm. I get it. Right. I mean, it's like, you know, I look at the Tour of Darkness supplement that this is from 2003, and as I'm looking through it, and I'm looking through the monster list and everything that's like that, like napalm ghosts and stuff like that, and I'm just going, okay. And it's like, no, I mean, it's like, if you're a non-Southeast Asian you know, player coming into it and saying, okay, napalm ghosts, yeah, or, or, or whatnot, and then I'm now attacking your, your U.S. Army unit here on a secret black ops mission, that's one thing. But it's like, no, it's like, can you imagine trying to say to another Vietnamese player or someone like that whose family may have actually you know, been experiencing or adjacent to a napalm bomb attack here, like, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's like, hey, mom and dad, guess what I just fought today? Like, so you know, you have these questions about what is sensitivity, uh, technology. Like, how do we, how do we step forward to address those? When I, I, I'm presenting not as a, you know, this is a hard red line, but to just say, you know, it's interesting. That's what makes it great is that the matter to me isn't settled. That we must understand the dynamic there, and that you know, probably five, ten, fifteen years from now, as we, if we all keep writing and others start joining in that, we may say, oh, you know what? What are we thinking, Cassandra? What are we thinking, Nadia? What are we thinking, Brian? Uh, you know. But again, so we, think, we hope many of you will continue to join us on that and to ask those questions. Push and probe us on that. I was going to have one more point. Um, since you mentioned sensitivity, like if you are writing in Southeast Asian lore, I would recommend getting more than one sensitivity reader for it because, like, mm -hmm. Each country alone has so many different cultures, like everyone's pointed out, so just one person's perspective is not going to work. And just jumping on an earlier point, Nadia, I mean, like, I think locals will all have the name for the monsters that already exist, and I think every single culture within the country probably has a very slightly different name yeah, depending yeah. on their individual heritage. So, like, Southeast Asia is very complex and deeply intricate. Well, I mean, like, for example, one of the interesting issues we ran into when we were um, doing our poem Full Metal Hanuman a while back was that in Hinduism, Hanuman is the sacred monkey you know, god, and, and it's like, you know, at, it's like, you know in, in some regions of India, Hanuman is considered so sacred that women can't enter into the temples, you know, then because he's this like hyper-masculine figure. Then. In Laos, he's more kind of like viewed as a... Um, Casanova meets Rambo meets Monkey all rolled up into one. And he's this big trickster you know, figure, and so it's kind of hard, like, okay, yeah. It's like, even as we create works that are true to our culture, and you know, I think as writers we have a responsibility to nudge it a little bit, like, okay, well, you know, what if Hanuman, after the battle of um, Nanka, had PTSD or something like that? And you, if you pose those questions, then, you know, it's like, how do you, you know, do it in such a way that someone from 
know, Hinduism isn't going to say, hey, you can't talk about our sacred you know, god like that. And at the same time, you're looking at, you know, you know a non-Asian reader going like, okay, but you do understand. I'm also making just, this is a very radical interpretation. And don't suddenly go, this is what all the Lao believe about. Like, no, this is just a thought experiment. Ben, what do, how, do, how do we navigate that? Very slowly and with great care and deep worry. <sighs> Right? Yeah. But then again, you know, it's like, I think about that, but then every now and then I also think, you know, I hate to say it, it's like, at a take of a risk of a tasteless metaphor here, it's like, you know, boom, it's like, you know, you have to also sometimes just step on landmines and then to see what, you know, it's like, what does happen on that and to just say, okay, now we have a piece of exploded and now as we reassemble them, how do we build back better? How do we find the better languages out there? I mean, you know, when Lovecraft was writing his works, he didn't really think, oh, this is going to be super offensive and this is kind of like the grossest thing ever to talk about people like that. And now, now we see it is. And we have to understand as writers and creators today, as we go forward, there is a good chance if you keep at this, you know, 30, 40 years from now, as our, as our understanding of humanity changes, you will, it's like your, your, even, even your best writing, my best writing will probably be called to task. Yeah, you fell short. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and you know, like again, we're talking about minorities within minorities mm-hmm. as well. But, you know, that, you know, yeah. We're not just all going to be the straight perspective. We're not going to you know, be the experience of the way men view a culture versus the way women view the culture you know, versus you know, people with disabilities. People, you know, it's like, you know, that's the great question for the weird I think that still remains is how do we include a more inclusive vision uh, of that, right? of, 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 of those experiences and that range? Yeah, that's a really important point because there is so much history of ethnic conflict in Southeast Asia and ethnic sort of disparities between, you know, like people from of different heritages. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like there are movies that, you know, I was told, for instance, like, Crazy Rich Asians, you love it. And I was like, mm, no, actually, because there's no Malay representation in it. Um, and yeah, so there, there's things like that, you know, like you just never, you can never be too confident. Um, so yeah, I think that the advice about getting multiple sensitivity readers or getting as close to what you want your audience to be as a sensitivity reader is a, is a, is a really good idea. So I say I actually love Crazy Rich Asians, even though I noticed that they decided to whitewash, well, you know, colorism-wise, um, some of the characters there. Um, I loved it because of the food scenes. There were no <laughs> translations for like what the guy was ordering. He just ran around the mama's halls. And when you get to like the rich lady's house in that luxurious scene of the kitchen where you're cooking and, and there it's treated like French cuisine, it's treated like Michelin star quality food. I remember bursting into tears in the cinema. Like the rest of it got nothing out of me but a food scene. I just cried because I've never seen Southeast Asian food depicted with so much love before and that was a big thing for me. But I think that also illustrates like the point that we're putting like even on this panel alone we have such disparate views on a single movie because we focus on different parts and I agree with Nadia on the lack of Malay representation on it but I also found things that I loved and it's it's just very complicated to be Southeast Asian yes it is <laughs> and I think good art does that though that it leads us to those conflicts on it but how are we doing on time? 25 I think, oh, I'll tell you what it's like 
Let's open it up then to questions. No question too strange. No question too horrifying. There, it's like we've got, we're going to call this a safe space here, and also it's too, too terrible. And that it opens a rift in, in time space. We're going to wrap, wrap that question as we pull back. Fair enough. Okay, questions. Well, first, a comment. Thank you for the wonderful panel here. I think. This project, Vulcan, I think you have the right to be very proud of our wonderful country of Indonesia. I had a connection, my father worked there, I traveled there, my girlfriend is Indonesian, Chinese, and Japanese, heritage. Well, you know, it's the largest Muslim country in the world by far by population. Statistically, one in every eight Muslims on this planet is Indonesian. And they have a place there where uh, women have almost unprecedented rights. Travels from businesses out of high political office as well. Yeah. Marvelous uh, cooperation and peace between Christians and, and Muslims, as you know, the largest mosque in Southeast Asia is in Jakarta, and it was purposely built right opposite the largest church. Hard fought, I will say. And uh, it's one of those, you know, it's a, a religious peace if you can keep it. And they, a lot of travel there, actually, they were, they were doing well. Which actually leads me to my answer for a comment. But sadly, unlike other parts of the world where Islam dominates temples and the wonderful archaeological sites have been torn down and destroyed, they have been built up and preserved so marvelously. If you ever go there or go to a Buddhist complex, also the Benkrabana, Hindu and Kandi Samasar, and seeing those, I, I recognize and realize that they novels and stories not like Lovecraft himself, but his, his comrades. Would take these exotic locations, and of course, some of these gods and deities were very fierce, and they were, they were kind of a devil worship. My limited understanding, actually, many of these, especially the Hindu ones, are actually beneficial fighters for the righteous, kind of like the, kind of like the religious equivalent of a Rottweiler in your yard for bad guys. But if you talk about that a little bit, it must be dispiriting, perhaps, to see using the older examples, too. But they come in this kind of complex of all these demons around this sort of thing, misunderstanding, you know, that of that culture. Mm, yeah, I was actually thinking about Borobudur, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, it's this, it's like the largest Buddhist temple complex in the world, and it's set in the jungle of Java. Um, beautiful, but if you look at like the, mu the museum of Borobudur that's there also, you see pictures of when it was discovered by Europeans because like basically it has been overgrown by jungle and all they can see are like these giant tips of stone ceilings coming out of the jungle and it's terrifying looking. Like honestly, like you see that and you're like, what is this like lost city? Um, and you know, and yeah, like it adds, it's actually like a very beautiful, like very non-scary place. Um, and and yeah, to your point, like a lot of a lot of the demon the demons are actually our guardians, for sure. Right. What is something you would be? What is something you would be really excited about seeing in the perfection Southeast Asian food. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I mean, it's like it is one of those things that food is so central to the, to the community. Mm -hmm. And I, I would certainly second that the Southeast Asian food is kind of like the great unifier 
almost. It's like, you know, the phrase in, um, in Lao is kin kao kam eat, kam eat. It's like, you know, like the greatest spin, but you can actually kind of tell people it's, yeah, you know, we've got enough 20 here, but yeah, come be a part of this table. That's, that's a very exciting thing. I think it's also, for me, I would like to see depictions that are slightly more normal, slightly true, more true to the experience. Like, Indiana Jones that had like the characters eating monkey brains when they were in Southeast Asia or something like I, I would like less of that. It still happens. That's very distressing. Well, I mean, it's always a mix, right? Like you know, like a whole issue with um, Fear Factor one time when it's like you know you had the Vietnamese contestant Ben and it's like you know they were trying to do a food challenge and so you know it's like yes, it's like you know this time we have yeah, food challenges, barbecued you know, beef brains and stuff like. That. And, it's oh, like, you know, yeah. and I'm, I'm looking at it, it's like, you know, the um, whole thing was a Vietnamese guy was down, was down for it, because like, yeah, this is delicious. Like, you guys don't know what you're missing out. <laughs> and it's like, I think the Filipino balut, um, mm-hmm. the egg with like the, yes. the chick that is still in there and the way it's treated in media when it's completely normal habit. Well, I mean, down in Texas, right, you know, now I'm seeing more vending machines which are dispensing crickets and insects and stuff like that, and it's like, it's this whole interesting thing of, yeah, so, you know, Southeast Asians are, you know, have been eating these for many, many um, centuries, and it's a protein source, and so it's kind of like, oh yeah, you know, my, my mother sent a text over, it's like, I can't believe you guys are paying this much for a little box of crickets, what's wrong with you? It's like, I have no son. <laughs> Something I'd love to see more of is politics, like political context. Mm. Um, especially, like, I think sometimes we get trapped into, like, uh, the people there are just, like, kind of not involved in politics. But, like, the fact is, like, if you have a corrupt government um, where they are buying votes, I mean, okay, let's leave comments aside about where things happen here, but, like, they're buying votes, you know, the local officials have to be bribed all the time. Politics are going to be a huge part of these people's lives. Like, think mm-hmm. about, like, is it a democracy? Is it a kingdom? Is it um, a military dictatorship? I'd just love to see more sort of like contextualization about the society that these people are living in. I mean, it's an interesting thing about you know, how we work with you know, the senses of power and hierarchy there. But I often tell my students in the US that the problem is we have to write the very limits of our imagination outside and exercise those freedoms of speech while we still have it. And because you'd be surprised, many parts of Asia, you know, then, that you can't really write about the kinds of things that we get to write about it. You can't write about this dystopian future with a different government because you suddenly get this question of, so, you imagine this future in which our party, our government is no longer in charge. Do you want to talk with us about that? You can't do a story about time travel often because you've suddenly run into a question of, so you're going back to the pre-revolution era, are you? And you kind of really about that time when we had all the kings, but you know, we spent a whole lot of time kicking them out and putting them into um, camps or holes or, or something like that. You know, these uncomfortable questions there, but for us it's like, you know, but still, be able to ask. Oh, there's what a lot if. of interesting potential there though. I mean, think about mm-hmm. like, you think like, oh, the border is different now. Mm-hmm. You end up in a different country. I mean, that's really cool. Right. I mean, it's just, again, it's like talking about all of a sudden for, the, for Southeast Asian writers, I think the neat thing is, is that as we're looking 
added factor. Sun no longer is you know, stores and players coming from the hierarchy, but only the nobles and the elite mm-hmm. get to do it. But those of us coming from the ground level here are going to be able to say, you know, it's okay. I don't come from a line of, you know, you know back in, you know, it's maybe, you may not remember this, but in the 1990s, like, we got all these Southeast Asian stories. Like, I was descended from the prince and the princess, or, um, you know, and then I, it, it, yeah, it, it was really, it was really crazy in literature. Where it's like, you couldn't turn around, you know, without finding someone who came from these upper elite families of the crazy rich Asian type of, but then we lost it all. It's like, it's kind of, yeah, well, you know, it's like my dad is a farmer, okay? It's like, my, you know, my, it's like my mother um, was working um, in the restaurants here and we didn't get to have that experience. But now, through you know, this era, we're going to see more people kind of giving those you know, perspectives and the adventures within horror even then. Like, I mean, that's why the, I love the giant Xi game where, um, about the Chinese Americans trying to create you know, this restaurant in, um, in racist America in the 1920s. Um, and, and yeah, you know, here we are just trying to run a restaurant. And oh, yeah, now also ancient ghosts from our past are also interrupted and they want a meal. It's like, how do you, how, how, you know, you role play, how do you navigate that? Like, you know, keep them from burning down your restaurant and then also make sure that um, your grandpa's ancestor, the elder ghost, um, is also happy to. Like, you know, these are fun things to watch us juggle. Mm-hmm. Other questions? Uh, that's point. No, I think there are. Oh, okay. okay. Green. Yes. Thanks for the question, um, and thank you for picking up my book. She said, "Destroying." Um, yeah, uh, it's. I think so. I moved to Nebraska after Jakarta, which was a big change. Obviously, you can imagine, but not as big as you might think, because they're both both like Indonesia is like uh, very um, oppressively Muslim. I mean, I'm, I grew up atheist. Um, and then I moved to Nebraska where it's like oppressively Christian. So there's actually like, there's, there's like weird sort of like small town dynamics that I think are present in both. Um, but I think, you know, and, and there's sort of like kind of, it's not, it's, I think it would be harder if I was writing New York City and Jakarta for some reasons like that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like the, the Indonesia stories are a lot harder. I will say because I have to juggle way more uh, like political social things and Nebraska is a little easier um, just to kind of it's a little flatter not to be too funny about it but yeah I was wondering Where the actually 
between his story, Black Man of War, and it's actually where I went to this talk, why I went to this talk, because went to the Shubal run in it, and that's where the story came from. And what struck me about that was that, uh, in that he portrays the show, show is basically this one anomalous sort of uh, Malaysian tribe, but the trick is that, like, the point is that they're completely anonymous and that they look exactly the same. And but but they're sort of, um, but that's how they're able to get by because the point is that not that they're loose, but that they are ordinary people. And so happens, you know, they're all That's not so no, I'm just hard to carry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't run into that one yet. But I, I, I said I'll, I'll have to keep an eye out for yeah. that. But uh, well, I think we saw a question over there. Yeah, this is unfortunately a follow-up. Um, so I'm going to be working on a project where I, you know, I have to kind of put a framing device around the show. Show it's a non-fiction project. I'm like, I'm ready this. Um, do you have any words of guidance or things that you might think would be helpful to say for readers in that context? Talk to people from the region, talk to Burmese sensitivity readers, do your research, dig deep into academic texts, review them, review the reviews of academic texts, because some of it is inherently racist due to certain perspectives, and you should look at a call and response that they've engendered. Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, that's really the frustrating part about it, then, is that, you know, so many of us have to recover our history and our understanding of our culture, and then we have to refilter it and we have to reimagine it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in some ways, you know, you just have to also reach for that human empathy, I think, then, and then, you know, just try to flip the tables and see it through that lens. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know, like, one thing that is occurring to me, well, is also kind of the sense of, in the um, U.S., we have I run into a lot of people who treat the cultist model um, that's so common in um, in the call of Cthulhu um, sensibilities, you know, whether the esoteric order of Dagon or um, everything else like that. You know, you often run into this idea that um, you know it's a very it's also a kind of a Christian model. Of you have it's like if people are worshiping this god or this entity, then that it's because they love that or that they want to serve it. Then. And it occurred to me of it. No, no, no. It's like we run into a lot of cultures that look. It's like the only reason that we're even feeding people um, to this is that a so it doesn't eat us or that um, it, it it goes to take it attention to the neighbors next door who are being complete jokes to us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and like, yeah. If that if that tribe happens to just get wiped off the face of the planet by you know, the dark you know, by the dark forces, well, how inconvenient. <laughs> But you know, and so it's it's back then, but it's not that when we see these things, it's like it's not, you know, about yeah, oh, I'm dying to serve this you know, entity. And it's like yeah, it's like okay, no, as we were saying, it's the trade-off, the negotiation of, okay, yeah, it's like just leave me alone. Is this what it takes? And you know, it'll still on student has it have its cost. Go figure. I think that was the last question. But it's tricky. We got to three fifteen. We got to three. I think we're supposed to be eight. Yeah, so we have another 15 minutes. Yeah. Okay, so. All right. Question? Oh, I'm seeing one up in front now. I saw an interview with Jordan Gill once where he talked about standing in with your power because it was something that looked like him who had all the power even though he was a villain. Are there any stories or characters that might make the same way with you? 
specifically for Southeast Asian mythology or just in general? In general. Or from Lovecraft or in general? Whatever you have. Okay. Okay. It's impressive to see that this is not quick. Okay. Someone else answered first for once. Okay, there's there's a goddess in who lives in the South Sea underneath Java, but I can't pronounce her name. I'm literally not allowed to say it. But anyway, um, she is awesome and like so evil and cunning and like beautiful and is just like she, (laughs) we went to this beach and my dad freaked out at my mom because she was wearing a green shirt and that's the, the favorite color of this empress like spirit goddess and and he's like how why are you wearing that she's going to kill you she's going to drag you underneath and drown you and my mom's like okay seriously like you don't believe in any of this stuff my dad's like (laughs) spoiler alert my mother did not get drowned but but she got food poisoning on that trip so yeah i love i love love her but i i will never say her name out loud I think it's Dashi Funi. Um, she is a fox spirit in Chinese mythology, and she's associated with this one legend where a king falls desperately in love with his concubine and would do anything for her, but she refuses to smile for him. And he brings her presents, he brings her jewelry, he brings her everything, nothing, not a single smile. Until one day, he just kind of punishes someone physically. He sees her crack up. Then it starts escalating and it results in the death of his kingdom. He burns it all down essentially after torturing his people for her just to see her smile. And like on one hand, you have an absolutely terrible creature that resulted in the death of a dynasty. But there are interpretations of the story that say that Daji was there because he was an evil emperor and that was the only way to bring him his downfall. And I've always been fascinated with her as a result. Yes. I mean, I'm always working a lot with the Nak or um, in the Indian Vinaga, you know, and, and you know that these are the celestial guardians between the, uh, the celestial world and the uh, and the tri- and the mundane world. These days, they take this role as guardians of the Buddhist temples. But one of the interesting things that um, came up is that. At least at one point in the Hmong culture, these um, it's like you know this orphan boy gets kidnapped by the you know, by the Nak king, and actually in this case the Jah is their term for it, and it may be a complete separate entity. But the issue is is that this serpentine creature brings him under down under under the water um, and says, "You're going to watch over my kingdom." Uh, or my castle for a little while here because I have to go help you know, my brother whose castle was destroyed off into the east. And I'm always looking at him going like, and that, and that brother is always unnamed. And it's kind of like, okay, well, what could it possibly, you know, who has a castle that could possibly be destroyed um, under the waters in the Pacific Ocean? Gee, I guess that's kind of an opening for us in the Lovecraftian weird tradition. The other one that I happen to like, though, is the one about the frog who eats the moon, which is that, you know, you know we call it Gokkinduan, where the um, frog eats the moon, which is that there's apparently this frog that keeps trying to eat the moon. The only way you can get rid of it is that, you know, you bang your, you know, bang your drums, gongs, you know, shoot off all your work, shoot guns into the air to drive it off. And of course, you know, 
and in the West is considered, oh, that's just a lunar eclipse or something like that. And stuff. you a-holes don't understand how many times Southeast Asians have saved your butts you know, here from some cosmic horror. You know, but thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you what. It's like, it looks like we've got, we're getting some people to start filtering in. Um, but do we do we want to do any last? If like, we're all around here for the entirety of the convention, if you want to you know, catch us up and or catch up with us and ask extra questions or so, we are certainly happy to do so, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, great. That's like Cassandra. Any last comments for the for our, for the audience today? Great. I'm afraid just froze. I just completely blue screened there. I'm sorry. All right, you're blue screened. You reset. And it's like Nadia. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, everyone's blue screening here except me. <laughs> so, again, this has been you know, HP Lovecraft in Southeast Asia. We covered a lot of material and a lot of different ideas, and now we've all been posting on it on our different blogs and web pages and social media and so on. The idea is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Absolutely. So, all right. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop Broadcast Network. For more gaming related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.